0: Matters Strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Elliot, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, So last night,
1: Eric, uh, we had a uh, wonderful dinner for 160 of uh, the alumni of the Strategic Studies Program at uh, Hopkins. Uh, where you and I have both taught for a long time. And one of the really nice things is I had a whole stream of alumni coming up saying that they listen to the podcast and look forward to it every week. So I'll just take this opportunity to say, great to see those of you who could make it. Sorry, I missed those of you who couldn't make it. And keep on listening to the podcast. And uh, with that, let's give them another great
0: session. All right. Well, our guest I'm happy to welcome today is... A friend and colleague, Leland Miller, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Asia Security Initiative of the Atlantic Council's Scowcross Center on Strategy. He's also a co-founder and CEO of the China Beige Book International, which he'll explain to our listeners in a second. He's a, a distinguished commentator on all things having to do with China and has been published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, South, South China Morning Post, etc. He's a graduate of Washington and Lee University with a, uh, an M.A. in Chinese history from Oxford and a law degree from the University of Virginia. Lee, welcome to Shield of the Republic.
2: Thank you. It's great to uh, be here with old friends.
0: Ali, maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit about what China Beige Book is so they understand the sort of evidentiary basis on which a lot of the things you're going to say comes from.
2: Yeah, that's the right the right question. Oh, up with because you know these days, pretty much everyone is a China expert. And the real first question you have to ask someone is, you know, why would I believe you instead of what I'm reading or what someone else is telling me? Uh, there's so few sources of data, sources of information on China that could be relied on. You know, the question is, why is any particular person worth listening to? Uh, so you know, back in 2010, um, I started a firm called China Beige Book. And we are the largest private data collection operation in the world inside China's economy. And, you know, we, we, we decided to start this up for a very simple reason, which is we didn't believe the data that Beijing was putting out on its own economy, and we didn't think that investors should either. So very early on, uh, you know, during the great financial crisis, we, we, we spent about two years putting together a very uh, uh, broad uh, survey of the, of the Chinese economy that, that didn't have any of the traditional biases. So we went big. Uh, we, we survey every geographic region in China, all the major sectors, 37 discrete subsectors. We street track private firms and state firms. We track large firms and small firms. We track everything's going on in, 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 the, in, you know, in, in the growth world. Uh, but we also track the labor market. We track inflation. We track the credit environment. We track shadow credit. So what we try to do is not put out a single number that said, this is China. This is the GDP growth number. So this is China. This is the PMI number. So this is China. We put out a whole slew of numbers, thousands of these numbers uh, for over a decade now, trying to say, these are all the different Chinas. And in the aggregate, we can understand what's actually happening in China beyond the the data that Beijing expects us to, uh, to, to, to rely on.
1: Lee, could I ask you, you know, given that, as you say, the, the numbers that come out of China are frequently dicey, and if I'm not uh, mistaken, the Chinese government is now kind of cutting back on some of the numbers that do come out, how do you sift out the, the stuff that's true from the stuff that's not true? And how do you deal with the numbers that, you know, simply are, are no longer uh, being released?
2: Yeah, so our starting point was the idea that anything that was coming out of Beijing Uh, we should be skeptical on. Um, Now, the truth on this. So, so basically, China Beige Book. We collect entirely our own numbers. We don't do these leading economic indicators where we take eight Chinese official statistics and then put them through our own special sauce. And then when they come out the other end, we pretend that they're independent data. We actually, from the very you know, from tracking it from the ground up across the entire country, every piece of data that we digest and we put out is China Beige Book data. Nothing to do with the government. No Chinese middlemen. Uh, So that's the ultimate answer to the question is you don't trust any of it. But, you know, if you look close enough to data over time, you understand that some Chinese data are fairly reliable. Some are absolutely terrible. I mean, I think on the terrible end would be anything involving unemployment, although they have been announcing worse unemployment uh, numbers recently before before. Doing away with the indicator in terms of youth unemployment, uh, credit indicators are are often in the middle. They're sort of good faith effort to try to get at what's happening in the banking sector, in the shadow banking sector, you know. But we found that they are extremely unreliable because they're these these big national numbers that talk about credit supply, how much basically, you know. The PBOC is is vomiting into the economy M- much of the time that credit goes to very specific subsets inside the economy, large firms, state firms, tier one firms, coastal firms, whatever it might be, not broadly uh, across the economy. And so people think that, oh, a jump in credit will mean a a boost in activity, better growth numbers. That doesn't happen. So what we've tried to do is, 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 is actually see what firms on the ground were doing. This started out as a quarterly exercise. It moved into sort of being a monthly exercise. Now it's reported in real time as we collect the data. And so the idea here is we have one eye on all this official data we don't really believe it but we understand that's what the market's based their 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 uh their views on so we try to have a story that that either uh that discusses what the market uh the market thinks but not relies on it so you know some usually usually investors are either very very bullish Thinking, you know, the the economy is about to soar, stock markets are to soar, or they're they're very bearish, like they are now. Thinking the economy is, you know, always one day away, day away from collapsing. We we have because we have more data, we have a nuanced view. We're usually somewhere in the middle, um, like we are now.
1: Is, is it harder to get uh, reliable data than in the past? I mean, our, our, you know, I would imagine some of your usual interlocutors would be a little bit more reluctant to. Uh, to talk to you. And if I could just ask another question at the same time and let you deal with both. Do you think that there's like a real set of numbers that Chinese decision makers work from, or are they making some decisions really in the dark because the numbers that they're getting are also corrupted in a variety of ways?
2: Uh, I absolutely think that there is a real set of numbers and then there's a, numbers that they, uh, a set of numbers that they put out publicly. It was very interesting during times of, of enormous stress, you know, back in 2015, 2016, during the particularly the early years of the pandemic, um, we would put out numbers that were quite different with what the government did. And then everyone would be surprised at how policy didn't match what the government story was. And the reason for that is we said, look, look at, look at what story we're telling with real data. If you look at what's happening, for instance, you know, coming out of COVID, the Chinese economy didn't explode out of the original lockdowns in January 2020, according to the Chinese uh, government story. You know, they were back to year-on-year growth um, within weeks. Whereas what China Beigebrick was doing was tracking actually every industry as it came back. Online was it at seventy percent capacity? Was it thirty percent capacity? We knew that the economy was in contraction for some of these quarters, and uh, if you look at our data, you would understand that the the policy response the government had for some of this stuff. Uh, so yeah, there is definitely a set of government numbers that the people that are you know the leadership sees that nobody else sees, and then there's what they release to the to the masses, which is usually much more um, uh, unreliable. Now. You asked a question about whether it's harder to do what we're do, doing right now. Certainly, the, the environment on the ground is, is, is much tougher, much, uh, much harder to operate in. Uh, I think that you know, we, we, we keep some of the special sauce behind closed doors. But I will say this, that when we started off 13 years ago, we anticipated the day where the Chinese government would be cracking down harder and harder and harder on their economic data. And so we built China Beige Book in a way that wasn't as reliant as as, as maybe some other uh, firms had, had uh, with their survey operations and with their data collection. And we, we were much less susceptible to massive Chinese crackdowns when they happened. So we're still kicking, uh, and you know, knock on wood, and uh, we're doing what we're doing.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably worth uh, just... Uh, explaining to our listeners that the title china beige book uh, essentially comes from the beige books of the uh regional federal reserve banks which also in the united states collect data about the us economy essentially uh from from the ground up uh you know rather than yeah. the top down
2: yeah that's right so we named china beige book a lot of people who aren't in finance say what a stupid name well china beige book came from a project like eric said that the fed came the, the fed still releases It's basically a quantitative look at the U.S. economy. You know, it's different Fed district banks interview people within their regions, and they try to get a qualitative flavor of what's going on. What we realized early on with China Beige Book, when we started out, we were partly qualitative and partly quantitative. And we found out is that that we're dealing with a very different uh, situation than the Fed is in the United States. In in the United States, there's 10 zillion pieces of quantitative data that, that everybody has at their disposal. So what made the Beige Book, the Federal Reserve Beige Book, interesting was that it was doing something different. It was bringing a qualitative flavor to, a, to a, you know environment that already had bountiful amounts of quantitative data. When we broke in to China doing quantitative data and qualitative data, we said, okay, this qualitative stuff is, is interesting, but wow, the real treasure chest is the quantitative data because there just is not large scale uh, you know, macro data for the economy. There was nothing on credit. There was almost nothing on inflation or the labor market, and the you know the growth numbers that were out there were usually very big, blunt numbers that reflected the dynamics in big cities or co- you know on the coast. Uh, wasn't wasn't something that really told the story of China. So we uh, we we adopted the beige book methodology. We quickly pivoted, but it is our roots, and so we we've, we've kept the name. And it certainly is you know if nothing else, a very deep dive into into the country, the same way the Fed uh, investigates the U.S. I
0: wanted to talk about something you all just uh, released, which was a kind of third quarter review. There's been a lot of discussion about the Chinese economy's problems and the problem it's creating for Xi Jinping. Your third quarter take is sort of interesting. At, you know, the headline, if I could steal it for a second, is the economy's not that bad. It's just pretty boring. But you also talk about that that's a kind of short term look at things, but long term, the structural problems are are quite severe. Can you Kind of, kind of do a quick review of that third quarter, and and then talk about the long-term structural problems that you see.
2: Sure. So, so what happened? If we go back to the end of last year, when 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 Xi Jinping pulled off the COVID zero band aid, shocked everyone. Markets got ecstatic because what they were expecting was this giant rally. You know, you saw what happened in the United States when you go in and out of lockdowns. You saw this you know, huge consumer buying spree. A lot of people said, oh, well, it's going to happen with China next. Uh, it was never going to happen in China next. China is a, a, a country that's um, much more focused on savings. It's not the consumer-driven economy the United States is. We also had a ton of consumer stimulus in, in the United States. They didn't have that in China. Uh, but what actually happened as we got into the year, and we said, don't expect this big rally, particularly early on. Markets expected it, and when they didn't get it, as markets are wont to do, they, on China at least, they flipped from being extraordinarily bullish on the economy to thinking this is the worst thing we've ever seen and gotten extraordinarily pessimistic. So as we got our, into the spring and eventually the summer, markets had not only given up on the Chinese recovery, say it didn't happen, uh, they decided China was collapsing. And the backdrop for this, of course, is that you know, there are, there's extraordinary weakness in the property sector right now. You've got these big shadow banks. Back in 2021, it was Evergrande. Now it's Country Garden that are wobbling. You know, the question is: You know, is China contagion going to spread outside property? Are they having a financial crisis? Is this a Lehman moment? Um, you know, or is China collapsing? The answer to this is absolutely not. China is not collapsing. It's not even close to collapsing. You know, what we see in our data is yes, the property sector is an absolute mess. But if you look at retail, you look at services, you look at some of these other sectors, there is sequential improvement. There's definite on-year improvement from the 2020 uh, year of, of, of lockdowns. So what you're seeing is an improving economy. It's just a pathetic amount of improvement, considering we should be exploding out of a year that was filled with lockdowns. We're not. We're just slowly, pathetically improving at a very slow pace. So there is a recovery going on. Um, and you know the, the property sector woes are, are significant, but I think we have to keep in mind one core, core, core concept. China has a non-commercial financial system. This is why it will not have a Lehman moment. Uh, The expectation was, well, the U.S. had its Lehman moment, and then Europe had its Lehman moment. Well, China's next. China's not next. A non-commercial financial system means that China controls all the counterparties inside the economy. If if there's a liquidity freeze up, it tells lenders to lend. It tells borrowers to borrow, tells suppliers to supply. Uh, so you 're not going to have a situation where liquidity freezes up across the economy because the government won 't allow that to do do so. What happens is is you have tidal waves of capital going from one side of the economy to the other, patching up holes, so you have a problem. You move. You have good companies buying to bad companies. You have local governments bail, bailed out by 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 central government or local governments bailing out local government financing vehicles. Essentially, this avoids an acute crisis. It makes China extraordinarily not susceptible to a Lehman moment. But what it does is it drives you towards uh, a much tougher end, which is a a future of extraordinarily low growth. So stasis in a very low growth. Environment as all the new capital instead of going into productive uses, instead of going into you know supporting innovation, in the economy, it's good money goes after bad, capital goes after non-productive uses and paying off debt instead of productive uses, and you have an economy that's going uh, long-term into extraordinarily slow growth. I mean, one, one or two percent. So structurally, so so just to sum that up, cyclically we think people are are far too bearish, but structurally we think they are far too bullish still. China's going to slow down more.
1: So, you know, um, I was just in Taiwan for about a week. And one thing that was interesting talking to people there, they said that a lot of Taiwanese businessmen who operate in China are (laughs) shifting a lot of their operations to uh, Southeast Asia. And they said it's not for political reasons. It's, you know, this sort of sense that long-term China's in trouble. And I was wondering if you could tease that out a bit more. So you say 1% to 2% growth how is that going to interact with the fact that they seem to have a very rapidly aging population and you know what are, can you tease out what are some of the longer term implications of that
2: well the the comparison often made is to japan and i think it's a good one um you know we started writing about this over a decade ago the, the difference with japan and china is you know they are both old countries but japan got rich before it got old and china is still a very poor country uh, that is getting old without getting rich, so the challenges there are much more significant than with Japan. So you have a situation when you look go, you know look forward ten, twenty, thirty years where enormous challenges will be will be pressing against uh, you know the, the the Chinese communist leadership. you know we talk about debt and how the enormous amounts of debt are going to be forced downward pressure on growth. The demographic situation is another one you know working age population has peaked. There's a huge male female imbalance. Uh, in addition to that, you also have very slowing rates of birth. That uh, so, you know these are these are things seen elsewhere, but they're much more problematic in China than most places. Simply because the economy is it's, it's big, China will be a powerful country, uh, but it's a poor country. And that means the pressure on the leadership will be even more than than in other places. And keep in mind, when you have pressures on leaderships generally, you have a democracy, you you, you toss the bums out. You have a, you know, you take somebody two, four, six years, they do their thing. You toss them out, you bring the next guys in, toss them out. It's a pressure valve on the system. In a one-party system like China, you don't have that. It means that everything negative happens redounds upon Xi, it redounds upon the Chinese Communist Party, which means that you have so much pressure during times where there really is no longer a pressure valve and and growth is slowing and the company country's still poor. So the challenges that China is seeing are similar to what Japan has dealt with for the past, you know, 30 plus years, but they're much more severe.
1: From the outside, it looks as though China is a very effective repressive state, you know, much more effective in many ways than Russia is. So, I mean, can't they kind of repress their way through that? That is to say, okay, we've, they've got this demographic problem. We've got a a aging population and, uh, you know, you don't really have the resources to give them pensions. That's not how China works in any case. You know, can't the government just say, okay, that's too bad when you're old, you're old. And if you're poor, that's your problem. Uh, And, you know, we'll continue to do the things we need to do to build up, China as a really major world power. I mean, it's. I, I suppose the larger question is, can they just repress their way out of that?
2: They can until maybe they can't, so the the answer to the question is that's that's what they're doing right now. I mean essentially they're saying look we're we're focusing on you know a slower, healthier chinese economy we're battening down the hatches because from a national security perspective we're worried about the pressures of United States with a dollar system where the u s controls the Dollar system around the world. We were worried about a domestic chip ecosystem that doesn't exist without semiconductor inputs from the U.S. and its allies. That's what they're focused on, and essentially they are telling everybody, "Hey, look, just just deal with it." Now, can that last for five years? For ten years? For fifty years? We don't know. Uh, But what it does mean is there's more and more pressure building up from inside the system, and so. People who have been predicting that, you know, the Chinese government's going to fall tomorrow, the, the Chinese Communist Party's going to fall tomorrow, you know, they're always wrong until maybe one day in the future they're not. But because we don't have very good visibility into that, all we know is pressure is building and we don't really know, you know, how that all nets out.
0: Well, just to pick up on Elliot's point, Lee, you know, the demographic problem is one in, you know that kind of compounds all these other problems, right? Because the lack of a social safety net uh means that uh, Chinese people, as they aged, have traditionally relied on their kids to take care of them as they get old. But because of the one child policy, there's now like one kid uh, taking care of his or her aging uh, aging parents. And as the um, working population, as you pointed out, drops, there's just less wealth being generated to to deal with those health health consequences as as people age. It, do all of these structural problems mean, uh, as some people have argued, that we've actually seen peak China? I mean, I think there was this notion that people had is, oh my God, Chinese you know economy is growing; it's going to surpass the U.S. economy at least in its overall size at some point, even if per capita it will be lower because, as you say, it's not a rich country yet. But they'll they'll dwarf us, and then you know, uh, that they will take over the world. I mean, there was a book written about the time that you started China Beige book called When China Rules the World, you know, because there was this sense of this inexorable ascent of the Chinese economy. But there are now people saying that, no, actually, we've hit peak China. So is, is it your sense that these long-term structural problems mean we've hit peak China? And does that make the China problem more or less tractable, more or less dangerous in, in your view?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of different wrinkles to that, but uh, I think uh, I agree with the China peak theory in some important ways, but it needs to be clarified because I think if we're talking about the idea of the Chinese century. I mean, I I can't tell you how many articles were had to read. We all did for years and years and years about how this was going to be the century that China rose. It would explode past the US in in GDP. It would, because of increases in productivity that would magically appear, you know, it would be three times the size of the United States economy by 2070 or whatever the numbers were. Those were never right. I mean, we were pushing back on that. There were structural reasons why the Chinese economy couldn't continue what they were doing for much, you know, for for terribly long. And and, and we're already seeing that play out. So from an economic growth standpoint, China may never pass the United States. Uh, I think that if they did it would it would it would be a negative for them because it would mean that Xi Jinping would sort of instead of instead of pushing some of these restructurings he's doing and, and reforms the system, for instance, in the property sector that he's been pushing it to, to great pain uh, over the last several years, it means he says, oh, no, it's, it's important for, for us to symbolize, to signal that we're going to surpass the United States. So we're going to juice GDP. We're going we're to reopen the stipul- stimulus playbook. Um, I think it would be a bad sign, in other words, if China passed us on, uh, economically, not a positive one. Uh, but here, here, here's where I think people get tangled up. China is going to slow dramatically going forward. Best case scenario it slows dramatically, worst case scenario it it, it slows dramatically under different circumstances. But what what is a what is a government like China's a a state uh you know totalitarian government that controls its its economy, controls its financial system, what is it really good at? Marshalling the forces of the state to accomplish one or two or five or 10 really big things. And we already have a playbook for what those big things are. They were made in China 2025, but Xi Jinping announced in you know, the last decade. And they have been come to, to be understood as artificial intelligence, quantum, biotech, 5G, robotics, et cetera, basically advanced technology. So the irony of all this, and I think why people have a hard time figuring out, well, is, 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 is it a bigger threat or if the economy slows? What does that mean? Well, the, the takeaway here is that even as the economy slows dramatically, China's ability to harness uh, its resources, its, its subsidies, its foreign policy towards very uh, important advanced technology goals means it becomes an enormous threat to the United States and to others in certain very specific ways. So if, 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 if China has a slowing economy, but it dominates AI and quantum and some of these other things in the future, that's a real problem for US power, for prestige, for the US uh, presence in the Pacific. Uh, maybe for defending Taiwan, if this goes into creating the advanced missiles that, that 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 we can't defend against, so it's a weird, uh, weird juxtaposition actually, in which despite the fact the economy is slowing down, everyone can can look at that and say, okay, the Chinese century um, idea was 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 never was never real, and it's certainly showing itself to be to, to be not real. At the same time, China is a very real threat in very specific ways, specifically on advanced technology, that that has commercial applications, it also has a military side to it. And so the United States should be more worried, not less worried, despite the fact the economy is not in anywhere meeting the target goals that a lot of uh, optimists had for it, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago.
1: Could I ask you a a political judgment then? Um, And again, I'm going off some of the conversations I had in, in Taiwan. You know, there really seem to be, not surprisingly, two different views. One is, As the economy slows down, as there are these kind of substantial internal problems, which uh, she feels uh, compelled to address, one argument is that turns them inward. It makes them actually less of a problem externally. Um, And the other, of course, possibility is no, actually, it uh, drives them to look for adventures abroad and the sort of the wag the dog theme. Which do you think it is? I mean, what, which way do, do the challenges of uh, managing a much slower economy with some, some associated crises, presumably, that they've got to manage? Which direction do you think it's likely to uh, push them
2: externally? Yeah, well, we, we don't know for certain, but I worry it's the latter. I, I worry that um, with a slowing economy, what that's effectively doing is, is shortening the window for action. For, for significant international action, you know, under the old idea that you know Mao Zedong talked about and Deng talked about, and others have for years, China had all the time in the world because China was rising, and the West was falling to the extent that what i 'm saying is not just understood but understood by the leadership and acknowledged by the leadership, recognized as the trajectory for China going forward. I think that that would come hand in hand with an with a understanding that China doesn't have as much time to do to do some of these things as as, as it's projected in the past. So if you're talking about you know an invasion of Taiwan, that moves a potential uh, time for an invasion or blockade from 2050 when China's you know continues to rise to around 2030 or earlier, you know somewhere around 2030 because you know the military asymmetries have have narrowed considerably. The economy may. Be slowing down dramatically, uh, even more dramatically. You know, uh, you know, a decade from now, there may be more political pressures. The uh, United States may may get its act together and, and beef up China, uh, Taiwanese deterrence more. Um, the world, the world may be different, and it won't be a China rising environment. It'll be a China under pressure environment. So, I am actually of the mind that as we progress in this, and, and as the Chinese leadership starts to understand the limitations to their growth model. And the limitations to this China rising thesis, that this actually narrows the window considerably for any type of aggressive international actions they'll do, whether it's Taiwan or South China Sea or others. And so um, I, I, I'm, I'm very worried that people don't take this seriously enough. I think the window for action is shrinking right now. The time period for action is shrinking.
1: Well, that's really sobering. You know, my, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've heard a number of people say, really, the way we should talk about China is not as though we're talking about anything even faintly resembling a collective leadership uh, but instead it's really a dictatorship of one man at this point Xi Jinping you know with all the things that are associated with having a an aging dictator who uh, you know is uh, hitting 70 and hasn't had anybody contradicting him uh, in a forceful way for a decade and, and so on and so forth could you speak to that I mean what what and maybe if you could speak to it both again, you know, wearing a, a political hat looking overall at the conduct of Chinese foreign policy as well as domestic policy, but also how, how it affects economic management, because you know it seems to me that you're you're more likely to make some further errors if you have just one guy uh, who's really established a kind of dominance that going make I tend to think even Deng Xiaoping didn't have calling all the big shots on the economy. So if you could riff on that, I'd be grateful.
2: Sure. So that's the great fear, that she is increasingly uh, you know, an isolated dictator and making decisions based on whatever he thinks in his head, maybe without very good information at his fingertips. I mean, we certainly saw that with Putin. There's no reason to think some of that's not happening with Xi. We just don't know. Uh, What I think is very clear based on the way that various programs over the last five years, particularly under the COVID era, uh, occurred, it seems that there really is rule by one. And then lower or mid-level cadres hear the message and they say, well, the safest thing to do is just to take that message and ramp it up to, to a 10 and so whatever xi jinping says we are going to be extraordinarily forceful with this you saw that with covid zero and the way that covid zero was applied in such a draconian fashion so the what seems to be happening is you know you 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 have a message from the top for instance look at the economy 2023 according to the commerce ministry in china was supposed to be the year of welcoming foreign businesses at the same time there was some stuff said at the very top about data security and some of which has been reversed but data security and 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 worries about uh, you know uh, national security uh, focused industries huge crackdown foreign businesses were cracked down foreigners were arrested this is during the year of welcoming foreign for, foreign investment to china there's always this contradiction and the contradiction is from the top saying something but then mid-level cadres, lower level cadres, maybe even senior cadres, reading the tea leaves and saying, I am more politically protected. If I take whatever she is whispering out there, whatever we think she is is saying behind the scenes, and we just drive this to a 10. And that means there's enormous policy conflicts uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and incoherence. So I think that's one of the problems. Obviously, the, the 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 biggest downside to this would be if she is hearing something on Chinese military strength, the ability to project power in certain ways economically, but particularly militarily, and he thinks that they have an ability to do something aggressive, and maybe they don't, but it, it leads him into an aggressive um, an aggressive uh, uh, strategy. To, and nobody will speak up and say this is a really dumb thing to do. So we saw that with Putin. This could be happening with Xi. We just don't know. One one thought.
1: Then I want to hand it over to uh, to you, Eric. You know, I think it's a common um, pattern in every absolute dictatorship. You know, the phrase in Hitler's Germany was "working towards the Führer." That is to say, you weren't necessarily following some explicit. Uh, instruction, but you kind of knew what the big guy, or you thought you knew what the big guy wanted, and therefore you would do that to the maximum. And that, that sounds to me like the sort of phenomenon that you're describing with uh, with Xi, that you take what you think they want, and you dial it up to a 10. Um, so, and, and I think you're absolutely right. You, you, know, you certainly see that in uh,
2: Putin's Russia as well. Safer to be on Xi Jinping's side, no question. Although I,
0: I would point out that, you know, in these systems where, as you say, there's this sort of, you know, implicit guidance, which people are then meant to follow on their own. It can also get screwed up by people trying to do it within the bounds of what their bureaucratic position is or what, you know, what interest they have. And they're trying to interpret the, you know, the big guy's guidance. I mean, in the German case, for instance, the German general staff had a very different idea of what uh, the way to fight a war than Hitler did. and, And those differences, you know, made themselves felt throughout the war and arguably crippled the, uh, the German war effort in, in, crucial ways. So taking that actually as a de- point of departure, Lee, you talked about, uh, you know, the time horizon for action shrinking, you know, this is sort of what uh, our friend uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, you know, uh, has Uh, called, you know, it's been called now after his argument that we got to be ready by 2027, you know, the Davidson window, right? Um, Because Xi Jinping has told the military, be ready by by 2027. Not clear to be ready for what, but be ready. So the question is, what do you think is more likely to be something that the Chinese leaders, Xi Jinping and those around him would look to do? Uh, Would it be the invasion of Taiwan, which is a huge roll of the dice, right? A very risky, very complicated military operation, most complicated military operation there is moving over 90 miles of open water to launch a amphibious, you know, invasion. Very, very tricky to carry out. Or would it, plus it brings in its wake all sorts of disruption economically, not just to us, but to China as well. Or would they be more likely to do something like the blockade that you mentioned, you know, which is throw a blockade around the island, dare the U.S. to run the blockade and put us in a position of striking the first blow, essentially, using their new built up nuclear forces to threat threaten, you know, nuclear retaliation against any blow waged by the Americans, you know, arguably reflecting the fact that they've seen how much the U.S. is responsive to Putin's nuclear threats in Ukraine. Which do you think is you know, more likely to come out of the sort of policy maw when, when all is said and done?
2: Probably the blockade, because it has much more chance of success. Uh, look, I- I- if an invasion can be done quickly enough, and it becomes a fait accompli. I, you know, I have no doubt the Europeans would fold immediately, and and you know the idea would be, well, there's nothing we can do here. Let's redefine, you know, the the line the, the, the sea lines of defense. And you know, we'd wake up one day, and and China would have Taiwan, and and nobody would challenge it, if they thought they could really accomplish that fast, and the level the deterrence capabilities were were low, which of course will happen if we don't get serious about about um, arming Taiwan in, in the coming years. Um, but I, I think that you know you could see a fait complete scenario for an invasion be something they're looking at. But the blockade would be much harder, to, much harder to deal with. Um, the question is to what end? So yes, so the Chinese could accomplish a blockade much much easier than they could an invasion. But what are they doing there? So are they they're risking a potential escalation to serious economic sanctions and others? Maybe not the same levels as an invasion where they're killing a bunch of Taiwanese on the ground. Uh, but what's the goal? Is the goal for the Taiwanese then to relinquish the island? Is the goal to force the United States to change its force posture? Are those likely in that scenario? So, uh, I think that it would actually be a very difficult situation if if the Chinese invade. You know, we're probably entering World War III. If they're doing a blockade, I think there would be enormous confusion on the U.S. side. Well, what's the proper? What's, do we wait them out? Do we, do we clamp down? Or I think there'd be enormous uh, dissension in the, in the U S political community and amongst China experts. So I, in some ways I'm more worried about the, about the blockade scenario because it's the, it's, it's easy to see how something the Chinese see is attainable, which is a successful blockade could escalate into a kinetic confrontation much easier than the invasion that either goes awry or accomplishes it. So I, I, I worry much more about, um, about confusion and, uh, and and mixed messages coming from a blockade, can I um
1: drag us back to the economy for a while, and I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this exactly i so let me try it this way. Um, you know I think uh, if if you go back to where people were in the thirties forties, and fifties they they thought, well, you know you look at the Soviet Union, it's not as nice a place to live as the United States but it does go to show that a command economy, you know, a centralized Leninist dictatorship can actually deliver incredible economic results, which in some ways can outpace those of the West. And then we came to the conclusion, no, 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 and certainly by the time you get to the end, that the, the built-in dysfunctions of a Leninist-style dictatorship are such that Although you can have a pocket here or there of, you know, maybe military technology that's good or, you know, some narrow field like, you know, certain kinds of metallurgy uh, because of the amount of resources they throw in it. They're just systemically unable to compete with a open capitalist economy like the American. And then you have China. And, okay, at first, well, the story we we tell ourselves is, well, the reason why the Chinese economy is so productive is because they are opening up. They are turning to things that look more like the rule of law. They are, you know, giving greater room for free speech, even certain kinds of association and so on. But now we're back in um, a, you know, a much, much more authoritarian China. And it is striking, you know, the, the overall um, level of productivity of the the economy and you know all the stuff that we we use day to day i mean i'm uh, we're going to be redoing a roof and we'll probably put in solar panels i'm sure the solar panels will be manufactured in china uh, personally i would never touch huawei but i can understand that other people do buy huawei phones and i'm sure they work perfectly well or you name it um and so i wonder if you could reflect on on that a bit should we kind of revise some of our assumptions about what an economy, not just in an authoritarian state, because I know Wilhelmine, Germany was an authoritarian state too, in many ways, but in a real Leninist style dictatorship, how productive, how competitive can it really be?
2: Well, I think that the the old model would be to look at the size of the economy and say, okay, well, this is going to be a competitor of the United States or a peer competitor or some sort of threat to the United States growth because of the Aggregate GDP growth. I think what we're seeing with China is a very different dynamic, which is yes, it can compete uh, in certain technologies and, and surpass the United States in certain technologies. We talked about AI and quantum, these are these are big battles, but it's the integration into the supply chains that's the real issue. So right now, if 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 things deteriorate and we decide that we are going to press certain policies forward and there's a Chinese counter-reaction. Uh, we're going to wake up one day and say we have absolutely no idea what's in our own supply chains. We have no idea what our vulnerabilities are to the, to, to China in terms of antibiotics. I mean, are how much of the inputs are coming from China? Can they shut off the supply of penicillin in the United States? Something people worry about. You look at green technology, certainly, battery technology, certainly. Um, so you have all these all these inputs that are that are made in China and part of this global supply chain. Um, And we just don't know, we just don't know what the level of vulnerability is for the United States in small ways or big ways. So I think the big task of the coming years, and yes, this is something the Trump administration started, the Biden administration has been doing a lot of, is just Try to understand how vulnerable we are in certain supply chains so we don't get surprised. What are the really important supply chains? Techno- you know, What falls under the national security rubric? Technology certainly does at this point. I think we've acknowledged. I would think pharmaceuticals do, uh, other, other healthcare products uh, that, are, that are necessary, um, and then figure out how to disentangle those from China altogether. It's not something we could do overnight, but we really have to push it. And we have to stop listening to corporate interests saying this is painful on share price. We have got to do it because this is a national security priority. Broader, there are gray areas, and then there's things we don't care if China makes all the socks in the world and they want to send us their cheap socks. So I think we have to figure out exactly what the national security priorities are in terms of supply chains and focus on them in a much more aggressive way on a much faster timeline than we've been doing. Um, and 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 I because I think that's the problem. The problem isn't the size of the economy. It's 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 not even the technological know how. It's uh, or the levels of innovation in, you know inside China that, that they're incubating. It's the integration of the supply chains. We don't want to wake up one day and realize we can't get medicine. And uh, and and that's a real possibility if we're not smart about it.
1: But you don't therefore worry about say the innate competitiveness of the Chinese economy with ours and things like technological innovation, except. You know, as you said, in those few areas where the government says, yeah, we're really going to be world beaters in AI or quantum uh, computing or something like that. I mean, you, in other words, the, the basic advantage of having a rule of law based free enterprise transparent system is still dominates uh, in kind of broader economic uh, competition.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like 95 percent of the time you have an open market-based innovation economy, it will outperform what China is, which is not market-based. It, it's, it's a state-centered authoritarian government that has national priorities that they throw money at. And so the, the issue here is not about broad economic growth, whether we're on a better trajectory than, than China is in terms of you know 10, 50, 100 years. Our system. Is superior to China's in doing that. What we have a real problem with is the idea that if there are five or ten things that are really important, again coming back to artificial intelligence, advanced semiconductors, quantum, biotech, all these things that we that we keep we keep keep hitting on five G. China can throw money at them. If you look at what happened with Huawei, now you know, Huawei is now being oversold. It's 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 one company. It's not it's not the economy. But back you know back five years ago, one of the reasons people started to understand the threat is they they saw that you know Wall Street Journal investigation almost a hundred billion in subsidies went to went to Huawei when Chinese Chinese foreign ministries would negotiate with with countries, they would require that Huawei be you know adopted as the five G architecture for the telecom. You had an the most unfair playing field you can imagine, where the Chinese government said, we are going to make sure that these advanced technologies are subsidized. They're backed by the government. uh, Their markets are undercut in China, uh, that they're being pushed from a foreign policy perspective. In those things, we have a real uphill battle. And that is why advanced technology should be number one, two, three, four, and five in terms of the issues that we're dealing with China right now on. Maybe six is investment flows. Uh, But look, What's gonna happen in the coming months is a very political year. We're gonna be starting talking about more tariffs and economic growth percent. What we should be focusing in, laser focusing in on is the advanced technology angle, because that is something that China will defeat us if it's a government backed effort going against our, 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 our market efforts here. And we gotta worry about that.
0: Lee, we're coming uh, up here on uh, pretty much the end of our time. I wanted to ask you, I think, what in some sense is the most important question which we haven't asked yet which is why should the american public care about any of this i mean you know what what does it actually mean to them and we've talked about you know the competitiveness of our economy uh, as opposed to the chinese economy so obviously there's some implications for you know economic growth and prosperity but you know, the president of the United States has said <clears throat> on four different occasions, I believe, that the United States would absolutely defend Taiwan against an invasion by China, which is a little bit of a departure from our traditional uh, policy since 1979, which has been one of you know greater ambiguity about whether we would actually do this or not. He he was very you know quick to say we would we would do that. Some of his subordinates have tried to, you know, kind of put a little more nuance into that after the fact, what the president meant to say was, et cetera. But, you know, why should Americans care about this? Uh, You know, Vivek Ramaswamy has said, yeah, we need to defend Taiwan, you know, because they produce 80 percent of the world's you know, microprocessors and because of the chips, we need to do it. But once we, you know, onshore all that because of the Inflation Reduction Act, then we don't need to defend Taiwan anymore.
2: So, you know, is that why we need to defend Taiwan? What, what's really at stake here? Yeah, the, you know, Pax Americana, the rule-based order, is a lot of, a lot of uh, ways to describe what's happened in the last 50 plus years. But it has been a good system for the United States. It's been a good system for the world. It's It's mostly kept the peace. Um, I think one of the mistakes people make in in trying to look at something like Taiwan and saying, well, you know what, it's not that important. Let the Chinese have this, let the Chinese have that. And, you know, maybe they'll be sated, but, you know, let them have a few changes, the UN, let them have a few changes somewhere else. And as they become more integrated in the order, then, you know, I think well, peace will continue. I think the problem is that it makes conflict more likely the farther we walk away from this, the, the you know, the less of a... Um, of a presence that we have in the Pacific it'll it'll weaken our alliance system It'll be weak in our ability to make sure we're always keeping shipping lanes open. Uh, our force projection will go down, which means chances of, of conflict will go up. So I, I think the way we look, should look at this is: this is not just a, a commercial competition between some Chinese firms and U.S. firms. Certainly, there's 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 important component that's economic, and you could talk about the hollowing out of manufacturing and and and, and people have for 20 years. But I think there's a larger larger issue here, and that is that. As we look at the way the world is developing, we have to understand that the united states is 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 at a position where it can um hold the line on some of these elements and 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 to the extent that it, it 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 pushes deterrence it it you know the the goal of the United States is to make sure that there is not a warrant over taiwan there's not a war in the south china sea uh the The costs of this are high. Uh, I think that this will keep the you know, the United States out of a kinetic confrontation. It'll keep our allies out of a kinetic confrontation. It'll keep the peace. It'll keep the uh, economic world order in one piece. Um, the second we start letting it slip, it undercuts the alliance system. It, cuts, it undercuts the economic order, and we go into a world in which we just don't recognize anymore, and certainly one where the Chinese will feel empowered to be – to be more aggressive and not less aggressive. So we have to be very careful that what we're doing is not provoking China for for the sake of provoking China. But we also have to be very cognizant of the fact that the reason the world has worked the way it has for the last 50 to 100 years has been because of you know the systems we have in place now. And we have to be very, very vigilant making sure those systems don't fall by the wayside.
0: Essentially, a system of alliances and a, a system of open uh, trade and financial flows. That's right. Elliot. You have you get to have the last word here. Well,
1: first that uh, this has been a terrific conversation, Lee. You know, I'm, one of the things that's uh, I must say really um, is very impressive that you can be as tough on China as you are and be in the business that you're in. And I think uh, maybe I could I ask you just to comment a little bit about that. I think you know I, I'm really struck by how if we're Decades now, people have been so mesmerized by the China market um, and their obsession with that and getting into it and, of course, benefiting from it, that it's clouded their views of Chinese politics, the reality of uh, of what that regime is really like, Um, you know, of course, with its attendant weaknesses and so on, but more importantly, just the brutality and awfulness of it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, to what extent do you think our understanding of the Chinese economy has been shaped by that degree of wishful thinking? And do you see that diminishing at all, or do you think that that's going to be with us for good?
2: I think it has been a huge problem, because if you look at what, what inputs, what information do most... Western corporates used? What do Western funds use? What do Western policymakers use in terms of understanding what's going on in China? A lot of them use the, the material that comes out of Wall Street. It's free. You know. It's, it's free. It's, it's from, from, brand, from very well-known branded sources. Uh, and so that has become sort of the mainstream commentary. And the problem is the people doing that commentary are extraordinarily incentivized to let Beijing filter the message to, to let uh, to to talk their book. I mean, we we used to be silent on this, and we've gotten increasingly loud because it's a national security threat to let Wall Street talk about you know the, basically mirror Beijing's image in return for access to the economy. Now, some of that is decreasing because there is a recognition on our side. I mean, you see the special committee has taken this up uh, um, recently, uh, but there's also sort of an understanding in Wall Street that they are not getting their end of the bargain, so there isn't as much just complete, you know. Bl- blind obeisance on the Wall Street side to, to mimic, you know, to, to parroting the, Beijing's message. But it has been a huge problem. And we found when we're dealing with corporate America, they have been overwhelmingly relying on people who are not giving objective takes on what's happening here. They're relying on people who are trying to sell them a service. And the service is access to China. It's buying China this, it's buying China that. And it means that the message has never been a clean one. It's never been an honest one. So I think people's eyes are finally opening right now. Uh, but man, it's been a slow process and it's not done. And I think we need to be having much more open conversations about this that go outside what, you know, Wall Street is dictating on, 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 you know, the China story, which is quite frankly, never been right.
0: Well, this is terrific. Thank you. Our guest has been Leland Miller, the founder and CEO of the China Beige Book. Uh, Lee, thanks a million for coming on. It's been a great, a great conversation. Um, and I hope we can have you back because this story is not going away. This is going to be a very big story for us for the years ahead.
2: Yeah, this is great fun to do, and 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 the way you guys sort of wrap in the national security side with the with with the market side is, is a lot of fun. I get I get stuck doing one or the other a lot, but but not often do I get a chance to talk about both in the same in the same episode. So so thank you for the opportunity to to delve into these topics.
1: And we'll have to give you another opportunity to do that. So my thanks as well. Thank you both.